Hello, 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 and welcome to the fourth episode of Conversations. I'm Eliana. And I'm Patrick. And today we're joined by Giancarlo. Hello, I'm Giancarlo M. Sandoval. I am a writer for Film Leuven, a German publication, and also for my own website, No One. And I'm here, happy to be here, actually. We're happy to have you. Thank you for joining us. Today we'll be talking about three films, The Zone of Interest by Jonathan Glazer, Close Your Eyes by Victor Aris, and Inside the Yellow Cocoon Shell by Fan Tian An. Right. All from different sections of this year's festival. Yeah. And one is from competition, the other one from Kansan. Um, and the Victor Erisse film is from Premiere. Uh, yeah. Kansan. Which, you know, which had quite a, you know, there was quite a controversy here around that because... Uh, uh, Victor Erice, uh, he was eager to be in competition and it's mm -hmm. sort of understandable because he is considered to be one of the great directors in uh, Spanish uh, cinema history. And uh, yeah, there was an open letter in the El País newspaper mm -hmm. where he uh, spoke to that and also was kind of regretful that no one of the festival and this, I, I suppose especially uh, Thierry Fremont, no, no one really contacted him more closely about that uh, decision. Yeah, I read that letter um, and it's a bit, it, it's interesting the tone that he's trying to strike. It's a bit like, I should have gotten in there. And at the same time, mm, I'm trying not to burn too many bridges because I actually want to keep a working relationship with the, with the festival. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially, I don't know, it, it's very weird to me because um, asking a bit of time or like clarity from Thierry Femo and the people at Cannes is a bit odd for him. I mean, he says that it, it's a standard procedure to let him know if mm -hmm. like the film will be in like in whatever section it is, but I'm not so sure about that. Um, and, uh, and I mean, it's, it's an odd position. It's still kind of shit that it happened, but yeah, I mean, controversial film and son of interest is another controversial film and, and inside the yellow cocoon nest is not a controversial film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if, before we start, if you wanted to talk a little bit about your experience thus far during the festival. Uh, sure, sure, I can do that. Um, I've been here since the 15th, like you as well, I think. And um, it's 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 gone gradually downhill, uh, mainly because of how tired uh, I seem to be and maybe older bodies malfunctioning like half the time. Oh, and uh, Giancarlo, maybe we should say that this is your first con, right? Oh, yeah, this is my first, the first edition, the first time that I've been here uh as a as a film critic writer whatever um and yeah it's been i mean i'm trying to like do a couple of festivals during the year to see like which ones are the ones that are m most like actually giving me films that i like because i don't want to go to a festival and, and watch like 50 films and be like i didn't like like half of them so it's it's been nice to come here and to like understand what it's all about what um i, I don't know critics are always complaining about on twitter and um yeah watch the films watch the screenings go out have a quick impression have a quick talk with friends and stuff and yeah i mean right now i'm mostly tired i'm looking forward to going back to berlin um but yeah I'm, i've watched some pretty good films some very mediocre ones but in general, good experience to be here. Yeah. Right. Yes, I have to echo that. It is quite tired. I think at this point in the festival, we're all just running on espresso. Mm. Yeah, I don't drink coffee, but I, I agree with the sentiment. I run <laughs> on enthusiasm, like you said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even more impressive then. <laughs> okay, maybe uh, let's go to our first film that we talk about today. Or is there something that we still wanted to cover, Eliana? No, I think we can get right in with the first film, uh, The Zone of Interest by Jonathan Glazer. So Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest, uh, his first film in 10 years. The last film was... Under the Skin. Under the Skin, exactly. Uh, in the meantime, he did direct some shorts, uh, 
There was, for instance, The Fall that I think is a few years old. Uh, that was, from a technical standpoint, very impressive, I guess. This is the new A24 film, and they really tried everything to keep this one as much as they could in secret. So mm -hmm. there wasn't anything shared except for one photo ahead of the festival. And this one looked like, uh, you know, happy family or friends gathering, you know, in the field, like a sweet picnic or something, which, as you might expect, is far from what this film is about. What is this film about, uh, Giancarlo? <laughs> this film is an adaptation of a Bonamus novel of the same name. So the film is about a family that lives next to Auschwitz, basically. And the father is, I think he's in charge of the camp. And essentially, it's a portrait, not portrait, but a kind of following off this bourgeois family throughout their days. It's a very matter-of-factly sort of recollection of that time. Very cold, very distanced. Um, yeah, I would say that that's, that's, that's the main thrust of the film. Mm -hmm. Right, yes, it's based off of the real-life family of mm -hmm. Rudolf Huss. And I believe Glazer said that he found accounts or perhaps it was rather the novelist who mm. had heard accounts of jewish maids who had lived in the huss family's home who then witnessed a type a type of a fight where the wife hedwig huss was very angry at rudolf mm. because he was to be transferred for a while yeah. when he was managing the um eth efficacy of the extermination camp mm -hmm. and so this film focuses a lot on, I mean, it's very hard to talk about this film without using the Hannah Arendt phrase, the banality of evil. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what goes on seems in, in an almost absurdist way, we see, as Giancarlo just said, the family lives right next to the Auschwitz camp. Hedwig Huss is essentially creating her own gated community, mm -hmm. her own paradise, She shows her family, she shows her friends this delectably lovely garden that she's been working on. And she's become a sort of queen of her domestic sphere that happens to be right next to Auschwitz. And this film in its was very disturbing, but very in 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 a way that's so distant that you can't help but but think that this is also very immediate in our current political atmosphere. Absolutely. Um, how was your viewing of the film? Yeah, I must say I was, uh, you know, I had high expectations for this film. And I guess, you know, you cannot say that Jonathan Glazer does not deliver on, you know, presenting us something we may not have seen in that form, uh, you know, when it comes to the representation of Auschwitz. I must say I found it really theoretically, you know, charged and theoretically informed. And in that sense, I felt like the film is like the film seeks for distance to its characters. Uh, I found myself distant to the film as well. And because I always saw through the sort of theoretical framework that is used in that film, that mm. is so Of course, you mentioned Hannah Arendt, but we have, of course, uh, this like Jewish rule that you may not draw an image of, you know, hmm. you. Uh, it is about the unrepresentability of mm -hmm. of the horrors of Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. So, and in that sense, I think Jonathan Glazer somehow went a safe path here, in in the sense that I, if I thought of how to make a film about Auschwitz. I would probably, you know, consult theory, maybe. I, I would think of how you can create this sort of distance to it and don't try to evoke some sort of realism or something as other films have tried that either in the like Hollywood way with the Spielberg mm -hmm. or with this uh, Son of Saul film, for instance, that mm -hmm. tr tried to go for exactly the opposite. And mm -hmm. in that sense, even though people say that... Um, this is something new and so on. I agree this is new, but it didn't so much come as a surprise to me because I can see the theoretical outline here. I don't know mm -hmm. how you felt about that, Giancarlo. Um, well, I had many thoughts while watching it, but I think what you mentioned about it being theoretical 
and conceptual conceptually charged is very very true because while watching it i mean i mean it's also my own baggage that when i watch films and when i watch this stuff i'm usually thinking okay that that has to do with this book or with this uh, i don't know uh, poem or whatever i read or something but in this one i kept thinking the first thought i mean i think it's kind of like the obvious one is um this memory of watching a hollywood reporter round table with my michael hanukkah right where he's asked uh so what subject wouldn't you tackle in your films and he was just like i wouldn't tackle the holocaust or i wouldn't tackle like this time because it's horrible i think schindler's list is horrendous i think that shouldn't mm-hmm. have been done blah 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 etc etc and uh, while watching it you think hmm this is the kind of thing that michael hanukkah would be like i approve um this exactly, is like, yeah. exactly like a uh, very conceptual very distanced in a way but the way that he um he gets to this distance is very interesting because it's not also i mean to speak a bit a bit about theory it reminds me of this quote of from adorno he was like uh, poetry is impossible after auschwitz mm-hmm. and um if we equate the poetry the most popular pop- poetry of our time like uh, films popular films then there's no way to do a popular film about auschwitz so what i kept thinking about was okay what is this person trying to say with this framing because the way that, that he does it is there are two technical things that i should mention um when you grab your iphone and you want to shoot a video a video uh, you just bought an iphone and you want to shoot a video you get this motion smoothing sort of thing like 8k 4k motion smoothing thing Mm -hmm. and that's exactly the feeling that i got watching the film i don't know the i didn't stay to read the equipment because i had like um, a screen afterwards Mm -hmm. but i don't know what he used but it looks a hell of a lot like iphone footage um which is not a it's not a um, it's not to knock on him but it's it's a technique it's a very interesting one because it gives the images a kind of abhorrent sort of um um like contemporary look you're not looking at a 60 millimeter or like an old film it looks like something that will happen now and the way uh, that to me it recalls a bit like um given the subject of the film and the banality of evil and mm-hmm. shooting with this 4k 8k thing i was just like why are you saying about our contemporary society that you are choosing to use this format mm-hmm. um are you saying something about iphones or about videos in general the way that we are tracking people and also this way of shooting as, as if it was like a security camera footage exactly mm-hmm security camera footage and um, filming like sometimes a whole body mm-hmm. and I mean one person goes into a room then goes into another camera switches security camera footage and I kept thinking of just I mean it's cold but it's also cruel in its own way it reminded me of this title from uh, Gilles Deleuze uh, coldness and cruelty how do you achieve this coldness and this cruelty basically by not caring I mean, the book from the, the, the Gil Deleuze book is about uh, masoch, masochism. And it's said there that masoch is not about inflicting pain, but being almost indifferent and cold toward, towards pain. And, well, what do we see here? We see a bourgeois family who is doing all their chores throughout the day, not caring about what's actually happening, like, right next door. Um those i mean just just to set up like a bit of the technicalities but i felt similarly like a bit okay like this is interesting this is good this is a bit of a theoretical exercise but i didn't feel the terror i must say like you eliana hmm. you did feel that sort of uh, i i felt great unease there was one sequence of just flowers mm-hmm. and we hear the screams of people who are possibly actively being beaten or burned Mm -hmm. and it's just a sequence of gorgeous flowers Mm -hmm. i thought the cinematography which is actually done by um the polish ukash jal who's known for his um work on ida with i think it's ida right ida excuse me yes there was this surveillance but it was also 
enticing in a very distant cold way that you're mm-hmm. in a cruel and cold way that you're talking about i thought a lot of the details as well really disturbed me um such as when rudolf goes to the bathroom and he blows his nose in the sink mm. and black soot comes out of his nose mm. we have a few motifs that recur and the idea of washing his body and washing perhaps any numerous amount of things such as from guilt to sin come up too and um there's also a sequence where we see that he repetitively locks the doors each mm. night he's living in his in this paradise but he has to maintain control of it he's very it's not a paradise <laughs> really yeah. it's very difficult but it's something that has come to be his home but it's very clear that he's insecure about his position for me at least and this contributed to my unease while watching it. Patrick, what did you think about what did you think about the framing yourself? So, yeah, the framing, maybe we should say that there are these instances where we basically hear ambient sound very loudly and really hits the bone, you know, it it goes deep down and that sometimes occurs when there was just a scene that is sort of elongated through this ambient sound and mm. when we hear the sound we we just have monochrome images we just have a color that appears on on screen and the film already starts with black and we have the sound and i think the sort of if there is anything that could prepare us this is sort of you know that that serves the sort of function that we are already you know thrown into this atmosphere i suppose and that i found very interesting because it sort of while not showing anything it it strengthened what i it strengthened the experience it strengthened the horror which is so weird because we're talking about an audiovisual medium but mm-hmm. uh, well really abstaining from from the visual it actually amplified the effect i felt and um, there is another you know there is another um, formal idea that is at play here that is sort of the film negative that we see mm-hmm. which uh is a side plot line i if you can mm-hmm. talk of it as a plot line but i don't think we need to get into that maybe we should later but i don't know if that's too big of a spoiler i don't know but it adds something to the complexity as well and i'm not sure if i've really gotten behind that yet mm. uh, i must say but what i also wanted to ask you is if you felt like you know this film i think it w- would have been sort of easy to create comedy in these scenes as well mm. but i felt like the banality never went to the place where we would laugh about the you know the mundane experience which are so starkly contrasted to what's going on right on the edifice of the uh, neighboring um, Auschwitz uh, grounds and i wonder if that would have contributed to the horror i you know one may have felt oh the the comedy i think so but i think part of this approach which is i mean i remember you also commenting on this is a very art house approach to the subject i think it would have added a note of cynicism to to the proceedings which spoils a bit the mood um in case in point i i think the only problem that i may have with the film beyond its theoretical underpinnings is the fact that sandra huller is uh, acting there because I have uh, gotten used to Sandra Huller basically being a very theatrical actress. And at points, it does feel like the the film that does go into um, very explicit uh, sentences and very explicit things, like when she says, uh, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but basically she says, I am the queen of Auschwitz. And at points, she's seen screaming and taking the tone of the film up a notch. And for me i i mean that hangs together with your your question a bit because the mood is so well framed and so constructed Mm -hmm. theoretically as well as practically not only in terms of uh, visuals but also in terms of the sound with Mika levy doing a lot of that sound design i think those moments take me out of of the of the film and i think i mean i would like to believe that Jonathan Glazer is indeed 
smart enough to let me see this bureaucratic coldness and for me letting me understand that that's the, what the film's all about but at those points when Sandra Huller is there and if comedy would have been uncertain I think I would have felt it even stronger I feel a bit like he's telling me do you get it like do you get this irony do you get this sort of like display and that is that is a very conceited attitude a bit like I understand it but it's also important to make a very definitive differentiation I think between Hanukkah and like what Glazer is doing Right. Because uh, Hanukkah would have done a bit of moralizing there and would have probably have got, uh, would have probably added a couple of scenes, strong, like difficult scenes. Glazer has a couple of, of those things, especially with this sub subplot, which is uh, subplot, yeah, in, in, in inverted commas. But yeah, I think in general, I'm just... Uh, I it's it's a bit expected as as you as you mentioned before. Um but there are like different things like signs that he uses like symbols and right. signifiers he uses. Like I I don't even feel I don't even know how I feel about this scene when we have Rudolf Hess in his garden smoking a cigar as he often does and in the background you have the chimney the firing chimneys with and that really much reminded me of um mouse by art spiegelman because he mm. uses different uh he uses vi uh, similar visuals and i wonder if that was uh if a very odd if that was a nod to Art Spiegelman as well because he used the same visuals. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I you noted that as well. I also a little nod maybe to Art Spiegelman. He wears a tank top at some point that has SS on it. And these look exactly like the SS chimney marks of right. in Mouse. But off of your point, Giancarlo, in terms of, and yours too, Patrick, in terms of humor, I feel very much that Glazer is able to maintain that tension because there are some elements where I think if this was with if this were a natural family, maybe we would laugh at the fact that, look, I used to work for this family, and now this family, they're our maid now. Mm -hmm. Or even when they're choosing when they're choosing monks dresses that were previously owned by very obviously by mm -hmm, Jewish yeah. women. Um, as if they're just having a nice little party, some nice secondhand clothes. And Glazer, in how you're saying, he knows he's able to maintain that tension so it's not outright comical. It's mm. very cynical. Exactly. But drawing up that point, I'm like, um, Sandra Huller, again, in, in those scenes, especially where he, she chooses to humiliate the the maids and the people and tell tell them something to the effect of are you trying to humiliate me like trying to victimize them and play a very awful game very sadical game um i'm i'm not so sure uh in those in those moments because it becomes too explicit for me and i would have been perfectly content with a very somber mood piece because uh, in those moments as well, like the framing gets a bit closer to like the actors and the actresses. And I don't really, I didn't really need that. And I didn't really need to see like when he, uh, Rudolf Hess, goes to Oranienburg. Like that feels also like a bit of a change of setting, change of pace, because we are so trapped in this house next to Auschwitz. And then we go to another place and it's more, much more about uh, army stuff much more correlated to what's happening in Auschwitz and well then goes to the ending but yeah it's um, yeah in those moments I, I feel like I I'm not entirely on board with the film but I can see it as a good theoretical exercise mm -hmm. yeah I think when he's uh, transferred to Oranienburg that's also maybe I think that goes somehow against what the film is doing here because then it becomes more like a marriage drama, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that totally dis distracts from, you know, this proximity to the horror while being in Auschwitz. And I think that didn't quite work for me either because I, you know, why would I, 
you know, I don't think that you can expect the audience to really, you know, mm -hmm. sympathize with the, their marriage arrangements, you know, and this consolation. And I think that was probably not the core of the story, which is why, yeah, I agree. The Uranian book, uh, you know, the the shift to Uranian book is maybe maybe a bit unnecessary. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe that's also Glazer's intention to try to make it. I don't know. Maybe some people would actually sympathize with this, this, this movement, mm. and But, then recognize that we're not so different. We in our present day, which might be a bit moralizing. I'm not sure. Yeah, there, there's a bit of moralizing, but it's. I think it's more, much more of a technical moralizing than um, um, narrative moralizing. Mm -hmm. The technical moralizing comes through this usage of this very digital image and this sort of um, security camera footage. Mm -hmm. So I by using those things, um, it's sort of like he lays the, these processes bare. And with, I think, with this subplot thing, which, I mean, with the negative, film negative, it's very interesting how that, how that works because the film is so much about this sort of theoretical and conceptual interest in Auschwitz that I would say that that subplot with the with the film negatives in which we see like the lives of Jewish people outside or a Jewish family outside I think is um, it's almost like it's like very nakedly like a subconscious of what the film is presenting as its conscious uh, sort of narrative threat Like, this is all that's happening. This is the bureaucracy. This is the coldness. This is the bourgeois family being bourgeois in, in times of horribleness. And it's very pointed and not necessarily super elegant, but this film negative thing does work as a sort of like, and here are the people that are being treated as subhumans, as, as not even people. So that's how we see them. Uh, but yeah, it sounds like we at least have like a really... Uh, like a lot to talk about about Sona's interests, like for sure. And there's even uh, a last scene that we we won't go into here, but that also adds to the complexity of the film. And is probably once you see the film, you probably also want to connect that last scene to the film in its entirety. With that said, I think it's time that we pivot to a slightly lighter film, even though it is called. Close Your Eyes by Victor Eris. Now, only Patrick and I got to see this film. Uh, but it gives me the chance to interview you about, about the film. That <laughs> so, is true. That is true. So if I may, <laughs> uh, let's start with... Dun, 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 dun. Patrick, what did you think when you left the screening room after watching Close Your Eyes? Close Your Eyes was probably the film that moved me most at the festival here this year. Uh, It's a very slow-paced drama. It's a it's a story about the perhaps impossibility of tracing someone back mm. from the past and the attempt to reconcile who that person is in your memory mm. and the representation of that person today. It's a film about this film director whose whose former main actor and good friend. Uh, disappeared at some point and the film starts off with this tv program uh, that looks for people looks for cases oh. such as those where people get lost or where there are mysteries surrounding uh, certain people and they want to find out more about that and they reach out to him about uh, his former actor and they And he is also in a situation where he needs the money and he oh. he then uh, agrees to having the interview. And Did you happen to see it at the same time? We didn't see it at the same time. Oh. I actually played ticket musical chairs in order to try to see this film after Patrick saw it <laughs> because he had a very good impression of it. And what was your impression after watching it? This film was it was very beautiful. Mm. As Patrick just said, we have film director Miguel. Mm. He is brought forth to star on this show that presents missing people and his friend Julio, the actor who is a beloved actor in Spain, has been missing. He's just a just a missing person and people have suspected that he's either dead or mm. they they believe that he's died by accident. And um, the TV program brings everything back 
mm. to relevancy in the film. But the f- way that the film starts out, the way that it it's a meditation on preservation of film, mm. a dedication to analog. Oh. Um, it's a love. It's a basically a, a a love letter to film and analog and the past, recognition, previous lives, mm. previous connections. It's very hard, actually, Patrick. I don't know for me to think about how to best talk about this without revealing too much, because it's almost as if there are some plot, not quite plot twists, but mm-hmm. I don't know how. Mm. There, but mm. I think it's good about to talk about form here, and I think you don't reveal too much if you say that the film is sort of bookended, and we have these mm-hmm. uh, two scenes of the film within the film, and in the film within the film we see this actor that went missing and we we see his former best friend in his profession you know acting and this is contrasted with the time of 2015 when the film is basically set and Mm -hmm. when our protagonist uh, is contacted by the tv program because this storyline is presented to us in really digital you know in digital uh, images as much as you could think of and this is so so much in contrast to i think people's preconception of what a victor eris film would look like yeah i was about to ask you have you seen like uh, have any of you seen like a spirit of the beehive and all the other or his other films i did see the spirit of the beehive uh, which yeah i mean that's considered to be such, uh, such a classic, classic right and yeah. has for instance also inspired uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, Pan's Labyrinth because it's also this yeah. story about children doing fascism in Spain and during the se- Second World War and yeah but uh, I haven't seen El Sur and I haven't seen mm. his many uh, his many other projects with other filmmakers like he, he has this interview thing with uh, Kiarostami I think and yeah. he also was part of several other films with Pedro Costa and Carlos Meki. Yeah a couple of omnibus films I think. Uh, right. I was about to ask Sight Unseen this sounds like a meta film like a love dedication to cinema to an extent and right now and I mean, this year and also last year, it's kind of difficult. It's proven kind of difficult for Hollywood directors to sort of do these type of films, especially because, I don't know, a lot of emotions get in there, a lot of like different impressions about cinema. What do you think makes the Victoria interesting or different from those films? Yeah, I think it's just really circumventing these typical traps that Mm. other films have fallen into, these uh, pitholes of waving at us constantly that, oh, this is the director here, look at me. You know, I am leaving all these little hints for for you to pick up on. And here it rather felt truly embedded in the narrative Mm. and we didn't really see Victor Irisa too much. It was really the narrative itself and I was very grateful for that and it felt very sincere it was very much you know uh, a matter of longing it was very Mm. much a journey of exploration also maybe so many things that come back from the past and then they find you in new shapes and new forms and now you reflect on them with the time that has gone on, you reflect on them differently. They hit you differently emotionally. And I know that all sounds very vague, but I, you know, I still want you to uh, explore that yourself. But all these themes are sort of in there. It's a lot mm-hmm. about memory. It's a lot about uh, who who you started out being and who you are now, and also how relationships have uh, changed and shape over time, and how how certain emotions can still be evoked, be it just through a song mm-hmm. that uh, that just hits this emotional nerve. And I was very moved by that. Did you have the same impression, Eliana? Yes, um, there's a lot of synchronicity in this film that I found was very touching, mm. that I often like when I see films. (laughs) Sometimes it can feel forced, but for me, sometimes it still has managed to get to a place that moves me. 
I'd say what's different with this film as opposed to many of these other films that yeah. are trying to push perhaps either an ode to cinema or an autofictional yeah. an autofictional angle on the part of directors that have come out recently that this film was able to capture this idea of for me at least when you have a film you want someone to see a film mm. because you want to forge their connection with the film in the same way that you see someone else Oh. in the way i don't know when you when you have that with those films and you go oh this person really needs to see this film this is mm. something in their life that relates to them that they need to see or this is a film that my mm. friend needs to see because this is how i feel about my relationship with them or with your parents or your mm-hmm. yeah or other people in your life and i think it honed in on this idea of once you are able to present the idea of them seeing mm. this film will they actually recognize the thing that you recognize yeah. yeah and i think that's the beauty about it whereas many of these films we have seen recently <laughs> they really insist on the power of cinema and yeah. you know they make that claim here this film doesn't make the claim it leaves that question very open to the mm-hmm. audience and i think that's you know for the better of the film mm-hmm. yeah that sounds quite beautiful um because i mean through both of your recollections of the film i remember i mean when i was younger and i had like and i had friends as opposed to now uh no that's a, that's a joke just the way i do have friends um but i used to have like film clubs and tv clubs and i would be like watching something and i would be like hmm this is something that eric or like my friend rodrigo might like and we we kind of pushed each other to like hey here please watch this i think you're gonna like it mm-hmm. with the years i mean i think that has been reduced the amount of times that i've managed to do that or that people do that to me because of taste or because i don't know different relationships get forged like friendships or mm-hmm. like you pull away or whatever it's just different but it's good to have a reminder uh well according to to your opinions and, and impressions about the film it's good to have a reminder of that 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 sort of stuff can also happen i mean trying to watch a lot of films and write about them being a critic or whatever you tend to forget about that uh, sort of power of recommendation i'm always so scared of recommending <laughs> things to people because i'm like uh are they gonna like it i don't know but <laughs> but it, it is true that it is possible that when you see something you're like this is something that patrick is gonna like i mm-hmm. think so so please patrick watch it mm-hmm. That's that's a, such a lovely gesture. I uh, I really uh, lovely to hear you talk both talk about this film. Yeah, and maybe one last thing I want to add here and then we can transition to our last film here. It's just that this really also felt like reading a novel in a sense. You really mm-hmm. get a sense of the texture of this people this person's life. You know, he also like nowadays uh, in a sense disillusioned maybe from life but still you know not becoming cynical or something mm. he he he's this novelist that ha- has been working on writing a novel for years and never cri- quite succeeded but uh he lives in this trailer park and he is really part of his community there people like him take care of his dog when he's gone <laughs> and it's really such a warm film without being cheesy or without being melodramatic it it never you know it never goes for these heights mm-hmm. but it also doesn't go for particular lows it's really mm. uh you know it's really an in between film that all the more felt true by you know by uh abstaining from these heights and lows mm. yeah but i guess we should go to our last film for today yes. because we're running out of time here and finally we'll talk about inside the yellow cocoon shell by fan tian an so i actually met john carlo in the screening oh yeah so i was wondering if we'll start with you yeah i actually went to the screening because of patrick i uh, canceled my my screening of all to play for because patrick put on a discord that we're both together on and uh, best film at the festival and i was like okay i gotta see this uh so i canceled that and i got my ticket on the balcony and that was you um um yeah and it was a very very good experience actually watching this film um because 
I have a thing with the Boo films. So first Airstream film or like first film, um, which uh, because I kind of liked them as a sort of experiment uh, as a first try, sort of like what are, what is this young director going to do in order to dazzle me or like to sort of like give me a calling card to see what his, he, she, they are all about. And while watching this, I was like, Okay, I can tell this is a, a first film because there are many things that are being tried here and there are many things that I appeal to me directly about the style. Um, the story is rather vague, but there's a thorough line about a motorcycle accident and an uncle that basically uh, takes care of the son uh, of her, of his sister after this motorcycle accident. And um, of his uh, sister-in-law. Sister-in-law, exactly. And uh, I think it's set, do you know where it's set? It's in Vietnam, right? Yeah, so um, I think he's based in Saigon. Okay. And then they, he goes with his nephew to the countryside. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's, I mean, that sounds rather vague, but I think in my experience, a lot of the films that I love have the sort of vague description about them. Like it's very uh, bare bones and you, I mean, you're just along for the ride. And while watching it, I had a great feeling that I was watching someone that had a similar set of interests as me, perhaps a cinephile to an extent. And that he was just like, I'm going to put all the things that I like and what I want to do here. Sometimes it doesn't matter like what is coming but I'm going to try to put it on and I'm going to try to make it as cohesive as possible. And I think that's sort of like uh, the best thing and not the worst thing, but like sort of the traps of doing a, a film like this is that a lot of things work. For example, there are long sequences, really long, elaborate sequences that are not all about like showing you how skillful he is, though that's part of it because it's a long plane sequence. But it has, um, I would say, an aesthetic use, uh, an aesthetic value in itself. And it's not at all super showy, low-key showy, perhaps, is the, the term that I would use. But in the end, it has like a lot of thematic richness. Um, and it's lovely, lovely to watch. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about this thematic richness. For me, it was very much an interrogation on life, faith, meaning the afterlife how was it for you patrick yeah i mean this is sort of also embedded in in the in the story outline we have here right because uh this starts off with the sister-in-law dying off screen of course then we move to the countryside uh to mourn her over several days so he visits the family and of course then there is this lost brother the husband of uh, of his sister-in-law and this uh, this brother has been gone for years and uh, no one knows where he is and so there's this longing always in the back you know in the background of uh, reuniting with this person perhaps uh, also it's just such a you know it's such a different cultural experience of mourning someone of you know paying the last uh paying the last dues to one mm -hmm. to a person and this communal you know shared experience I, I think that was also made very tangible in the film but the film was also whenever we get too close to something like you know trans transcendental experience mm -hmm. whenever we get too close to something that you might think of as you know being authentic or being uh you know reaching this high point it is interrupted mm -hmm. it, it will always be interrupted even that scene when they are at the at the funeral yeah. uh, we see <laughs> that this is actually just a video of the funeral that is uh, edited <laughs> by our protagonist on his computer. So, yeah. And I think that occurs a lot of, over the film and I think that uh, contributes to the fascination I found uh, in that film that uh, it is 
very conscious of what it's doing. Elena, what was your experience with the film? I was blown away by the first sequence. I hope it's really not giving too much away, but no, to no, me, no, please, uh, please. All right, outline well, that. I was heavily reminded of. Have you seen Masaccio paintings, or are you familiar with? Chinese calligraphy scrolls to any degree.、Mm-hmm. There's an element of that in them where, so first the opening sequence we see a football field, football I mean soccer. We see someone wiggling their hips、uh, yeah. on the field. <laughs> um, two boys with their backs faced to us, and we see a mascot. And then the scene starts to scroll, and we start. And I was I started to think, okay, now we're following the mascot, and then. Scene continues to scroll. Oh, that's so nice then, that you say scroll. You know. <laughs> yes, it, to me it didn't feel like it wasn't didn't feel like panning, but、right. rather like tracking, unfolding. scrolling, unfolding.、Uh-huh. And then we're looking at a night market where there's a bunch of plastic seats out for a restaurant, and we see three boys sitting at a table.、Um, the two during the 2016 World Cup, right. <laughs> <laughs> They talk for a while, and then it continues to scroll again, and we see the out accident.、Um, but we hear it first off screen, and then we see one of the men get up. And this just reminded me of Masaccio or Chinese calligraphy painting because sometimes you see in one painting you see a figure repeatedly appearing in the same、oh. painting, and you go, "Huh? How is that possible?" And it's just as if You're following a, a narrative of oh they're moving around <laughs> that's why Jesus appears here and then Jesus is by the water and then Jesus is over here talking to a person, but in this way of and Chinese scroll paintings also never ending they're continuous、mm. they、um, can be added to. This was very just it, it kept me on my feet because I did not know what to expect and everything felt I, and, and I was just blown away thinking is this all staged really or what. To what degree has this all been staged、yeah. and thought out? Yeah, exactly. I think the thing that impressed me the most is with this panning or unfolding is that every single thing, every time that he panned that the camera panned to to other things during a plane sequence, I was just like blown away by how carefully composed the next image was.、Mm-hmm. And that speaks to the talent, not only of the director, but only、uh, also about、uh, the talent of the cinematographer to be able to compose these images with such a keen sense of lighting. It was a sense.、Uh, it was like watching at times a Pedro Costa film because it w- there were yellows, there were oranges. There, there was really, really good framing, like distance a bit, but not so distance like the Glazer film, and. It evoked like the shadows in faces, and it led you. It led you, and I think this is very、uh, important. These, this film was really、uh, special in in this way because the type of、uh, films that he's referencing, or the sort of influences that he has and he wants to put on display, are films that take their time to do things. And as you were saying, there's this component. There's this component of mourning and.、Uh, And、um, and this sort of、uh, journey that this person goes, but at the same time, it's letting you have so much time to breathe in what is happening. That and that opens up a, a space that I really like in order to think with the film and be with the film. Like I remember, and I don't know why, but、um, after the、um, the credits fall, which is like very late, like forty five minutes into the film, like the opening title. Sorry, there's a shot of. Uh, clouds, clouds and greens, and and greens and, and and trees and stuff. And the clouds are there, and there's、uh, classical music or music playing on top of it, like violins. And I was just so moved by having those things be there, and I think I started, I cried a bit because it was just so beautiful to have like those. Those those little moments count for a lot because debut films.、Uh, the the usual example that I have、uh, is the Joachim Trier film、uh, Reprise.、Mm. He's the one that did、um, the worst、yeah. person in the world.、Mm-hmm. Um, 
I remember watching that and being like, okay, I get who, uh, what kind of things this guy has watched and I know what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. And in this one, I was just like, okay, I get who this person is trying to, like, there's a lot of Bellatar, there's a lot of like different components, Chantal Ackerman and a lot of, I'm sure, other filmmakers in there. But it was just lovely to see someone that understood what they were doing. And having had so so much precision in the compo in the in composing an image and respecting mm -hmm. that image and not just saying like you know what here's something beautiful like the funeral here and let's just leave it there for five seconds no let's have it there for a good thirty seconds to one minute let's see how the light changes let's see how the faces change let's see how the people move around and um, going back to your to the, the description of the first scene this conversation that the people have while they're in the market and talking about death and about attitudes towards life mm -hmm. uh, life i was just like this is not a trivial conversation at all and it sort of sets and it's good it's the sort of sort of advice that they give you in film school like put all the themes of your movie or your film in the first scene like so that it's legible to the to the audience so that they know what they're in for and he ends up developing those things throughout these three hours that just go by because it's so aesthetically beautiful. And yeah, I was actually, I was very impressed. Uh, at times I was just like, okay, this is super ambitious. And he's trying a lot of things, especially towards the end. Um, but generally I, I was, yeah, impressed. You were also super impressed, Patrick. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I think one reason why we find this opening scene so impressive is also that this opening scene, uh, you know, was uh, his short film four years ago mm -hmm. that was called Stay Awake, Be Ready, that also played at the Kanzen here, mm -hmm. but really just as the short. Mm -hmm. And so he had a lot of time to think about that <laughs> yeah. scene and yeah. how to really uh, have it as tight as possible. And mm -hmm. I think all you said uh, quite eloquently I, you know i i agree with that i think it's very precise and even here we have this idea that you have you have something like the dialogue here that is mm -hmm. sort of beautiful and is sort of meaningful but mm -hmm. then this is sort of undermined by the environment you know of like mm -hmm. a like a soccer setting and mm -hmm. of the world cup people yeah. are drinking beer uh you know are uh, inhibited and uh it just he always knows uh how to escape the pathos that seems to be lingering around the corner you know he's he, he's very often capable of uh, circumventing that and i appreciated that um yeah eliana i generally felt a lot of magic and spirituality mm -hmm. yeah. in this film i wonder if it came across for either one of you as well just both in the long durations of certain camera shots and things that I thought, how is it even possible that he was able to compose such an image or have a certain ending? For example, when the rooster, after a, maybe a 15-minute long uh, shot, yeah. suddenly flies up to the window. Okay, but maybe we should talk a bit more about that scene because, okay. you know, this is first introduced, you know, we we are there in the countryside and um, his friend is telling the pr protagonist who shares also the first name with the director. So we can take sort of assume that there is some strong connection maybe between the protagonist and the uh, director. But yeah, so he is in the countryside and he is told that this one rooster is just there basically to attract other roosters. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this is, you know, uh, introduced early and then a good maybe 30 minutes later or so. Yeah, I right. don't recall yeah. correctly, but then we actually see that play out. Yeah. We see how this rooster is there and making it sounds mm -hmm. and then there is a response and then rooster marco polo right and so we this is an amazing scene isn't it mm -hmm. yeah i mean i as a disclaimer not only for the, this thing but in general as a sort of follower of robert person it's always really really good when a director has a knack for uh directing animals not only composing images with them, which is all fine and good, but 
there there wasn't there was not just a scene with the rooster but there was also a scene with a bird like this long sequence uh, where he goes with a motorcycle and then watch it, um, gets to the house of um i think it's uh, sister-in-law's father uh-huh. and have this has they have this really com- long conversation and mm-hmm. then at the end like mm-hmm. that's that's masterful like that that sort of thing you uh you have the feeling of um like how how was this planned actually that's what i was talking about originally because and we go inside of the house and mm-hmm. we go around the house and it seems like there are no walls even though there very clearly are walls and yeah maybe it's going a little bit too far but it felt as if it were, you were challenging us to believe perhaps which is one of the conversations that the yeah. three boys three men have mm-hmm. at first if do you believe in god yeah and challenging this sense of faith and Then, through you know, using even, the camera and and even this notion of magic that you mentioned this mm-hmm. is sort of undermined by the idea that he is the magician in yeah. the film mm-hmm. and he yes. does a lot of tricks to impress his nephew and other people so even there where we clearly know of course there is no magic he knows his tricks but it's it plays out so beautifully yeah and this this long thing has like formal gestures that are like put the film on a like a next level sort of thing because not only is the sequence long and following a motorcycle a person two persons and then at the end of this long conversation like a bird pops into the window and it's like <laughs> ha huh? how did you do that and it's like it's it's so so interesting but the formal gesture there is that the light sort of changes and we just see shadows of uh, the two mm-hmm. people having a conversation those those things speak very well for future films of the director because it's like like i mentioned i mean i think my quote unquote problems with the film usually come out in like the last hour not because of uh, not not because of duration but because at that point it felt like he was trying like many things and breaking a bit with the grammar so to speak of the early two hours and um, there's this karaoke scene there's another scene in the motorcycle with the mist as well a, a lot of those these things are formally beautiful but I, at one point i was like okay there's a bit of showing off involved and uh okay that that took me a, a back but still like all of these things taken individually each scene is so meticulously planned that it leaves you with uh <sighs> It leaves you with a sense of someone that has seen a lot of films, but is also interested in creating his, her, their own type of signature. And that's, I think, that's the most important thing about any debut film that you're like excited for what they're going to do next. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's a lot to look forward to. I also, you mentioned a few points of reference already, especially where it pertains to slow cinema i think we have to say that word here once even though it seems to be sort of controversial to some people to use that term because it's so vague mm. but um i was really and i think you cannot not think of began for instance here right with the motorbike which was very much invoking kylie blues we have mm. a massage scene that re- reminded me of chimin young mm. uh what else uh, i wanted to Of course, Apichatpong, that yeah. is a mm-hmm. very obvious uh, sort of uh, precursor here as well, his work perhaps. Uh, but I do think that they, often I felt like, oh yeah, this is clearly inspired by this director, this is clearly inspired by this director. But I still felt that he found a different angle, he found a different frame, he found a different way of conveying this. And yeah, I think... Uh, I will very much look forward to this director's work in the future. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that uh, soul cinema is a controversial term. Yeah, I mean, as defined by Nadine May, but there are also like other ones, like, I mean, looking at it right now, directional cinema by Michael Walsh. And I think Michael Walsh is a bit more academic than Nadine May. And his definition is basically, it's about the create, through the creation of space, you evoke an elongation of time and i think watching this film 
is exactly the sort it describes exactly the sort of experience that you're having because the images are not just random images it's not like um just putting a camera in front and you know uh, well good framing or like in different framing but these images are meticulously planned to evoke a certain set of signifiers which makes them much more i think much more interesting at, at some points that what gets called slow cinema not not the directors that you that you mentioned of course which are are auteurs and like masters uh, in their own right but this feels like um not wouldn't say evolution but it's a good it's good to see this because it's a good example of what watching those type of films can get you as a as a as a director um and it's not the references are not only like um in terms of the formal aspects but also there's this one thing which i talked with both of you about um where they actually reference a movie in a mm -hmm. film in the dialogue it's from uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful life it's a wonderful life every time a bell rings an angel gets, gets his wings mm -hmm. um and it was that those certain touches that are very much cinephile touches that I'm like, okay, I get it. I, I get what you're doing. There was another one, which you mentioned as well. Um, when he, when we watch, um, I think it's a funeral or it's, it, in any case, it's a video that uh, the person is editing, that the main character is editing. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the video, he's filming um, a couple of people and in someone pops in front of the camera and he has to like push him away and in order for us not to see and what he does with editing is uh put a um, a transition so that you don't see uh, what happened in between mm -hmm. and what the director is doing is basically telling us see this is what happens when you put a transition here you miss the human components of the film and right and and it, that those are like a bit a bit of like a thesis statement and kind of exemplary for what the director is trying to do he's trying to get you to see those moments and take them in yeah it's this weird paradox of showing something that was removed yeah. by showing the removal yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah i i yeah it just i'm really surprised how confident this all is mm. this is just this really displays a lot of you know a lot of self-esteem mm. a lot of confidence in one's own abilities and yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. was this one of the highlights for you as well Yana? definitely definitely yeah. was and just going off of just not only cinema references but also just rich with art history references as yeah. well Absolutely. I think, uh, I mean, also shout out to uh, Locarno and the multiple uh, festivals that he did some workshops in, because I think this is very much like a product of very specific festival circuits, um, mm -hmm. festival media labs or labs or whatever. Um, it's a very accomplished debut film. Yeah. Well, yes, I'm very much looking forward to the next that he will make. Um, Oh, yes. I was wondering, mm -hmm. do we have, at this point in the festival, we're at day 11, are we not? Tomorrow is the last day. Do you have any Palm d'Or? Palm d'Or? Uh, I mean, I have some, like, uh, I did write down some um, candidates uh, for all the categories, but we don't have to talk about all the categories, I guess. Palm d'Or. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, now that I've seen La Chimera, I was like, mm, maybe, or maybe Youth from One Thing, or uh, controversial. I know uh, Club Zero, uh, but I don't know. I mean, with these things, I'm so out of the loop with like betting. I've seen people <laughs> in line betting on these things. I'm like, what? What? What is everyone doing? I've seen people. Um, from certain publications, which I will not name, talking about econometrics and like award odds. And um, that makes me feel like I'm 80 years old uh, <laughs> because I, I'm like, I don't know, I just want to watch some films, you know. Uh, do you have a Palme d'Or winner already? On the last episode, I speculated that it might be the zone of interest mm. just purely because I hadn't seen and I haven't seen as many in oh. competition films as oh. I would have liked to. And also for the distant yet possible relevant message that it's trying to push mm. Mm. if people view it as such. Mm. 
Um, what about you, Patrick? Yeah, I also think that's a solid guess. I think that is sort of in line with what I would guess Ruben Östlund might award. <laughs> and because it is still formally daring to a lot of people, I think, uh, his approach. I would still, you know, if I, if I would still hope for About Dry Grasses, I still mm. think that's a that's a great film but since that has won already i think they might want to do something else here this year what has it won ah no yeah uh, no. ceylan has won already Jaylan, yeah. Exactly, Jaylan, yeah. Yeah. so maybe rather uh glazer but tomorrow we will know more I suppose. it's true it's true well thank you very much for joining us Giancarlo. no problem my pleasure and uh where can people find your work or just your social media presence uh on letterboxd and and well not don't follow me on instagram and letterboxd you can find me on in constant loop and you can find me writing i just published uh the first 11 reviews for the films uh, from uh, LGBTQI plus and women uh, films uh, here at the festival at filmleuven.com. Um, and I also have another website uh, called nowen.de, uh, uh, but nothing's been published yet so far. Uh, so yeah, you can find me on all those things. Great. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much again. No problem. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.